to you. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. Our second entry into the MMO Screams miniseries as we are covering the most recent two Scream movies happening in 2000 and 2011, Screams 3 and 4, in the lead up here to 2022's Scream movie. How many times can I say Scream <laughs> in one sentence? I am your co-host, Mike One. This is co-host also, Mike. Thank God the new movie at least has the potential <laughs> of being good. Like, this is... This is so necessary on so many levels. Like you had a rough week personally. You're, <laughs> yeah. You've been texting yeah. uh, me about it and, yeah. and uh, alluding to it on Twitter. Just pulled my head out of the oven to do this recording. So yeah. I was really glad. That's terrible. That's a horrible <laughs> thing to say, and I feel bad for you. But uh, I, I, I know that's would not toilet be better. Would to- I mean pool? What I what you're you giving yourself swirlies? Yeah. This is the dark doing. mood that we head into this episode with. But no, you had. You had uh, some drama in life. You had. I needed some... good news. Well, you said some. Your news. car broke down. You yeah. had all kinds yeah. of stuff going on. Yeah. So it's nice to see that. You know, I was expecting the early reception for the scream, which 2022 scream. I'm just going to call it Scream Five for not brevity. Please, sake, why guess... don't we just call it Scream yeah. Five? <laughs> but anyway, I was expecting the reception to be, which had its first screening. Uh, what day was it? Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. I was expecting it to be like either, oh, it's good, or uh, it's a letdown. It's a January movie, right? It's, the, it's that dumptuary kind of uh, feel well, you've to all, it. Yeah, yet. you've been way more down on it than I have. Oh, you, absolutely. You, you, you but it's yeah. for good reason, Mike. Right. You I know, don't disagree. I don't disagree. Based but, on how we've you know analyzed these uh, release schedules in the past. And the uh, trend of how these movies have been received over time, too, mm-hmm. uh, as we'll get to in this episode. But- I was not expecting so many critics that we love to be like, holy crap, Scream is really freaking good, Scream 5. Rave reviews. Yeah. That so we were it's retweeting. Got it's you gotta you gotta watch a couple of the movies beforehand. You won't believe what happens. It's great. It's biting. It's a commentary. I, I, I'm very excited. Now, I mean, a word of warning, and we are we call ourselves when we're hypocritical, and I'm going to do that right now. Like is this the pundit parade problem that we have chastised over and over again for Oscars sakes and Oscar campaigning? Maybe. And we could be falling victim to that. And that could be leading to an even bigger disappointment when we get our hands on it. But like I said, I personally needed good news. So I will hold on to this like grim death. I think, I think, uh, I think I'm happy for you and I'll just leave it there. I, I, I want, I want this for you, Michael. I want this to be a good movie for you. And uh, we've we've been having fun together with all these horror miniseries, Halloween, MMO does Halloween, The yeah. Conjuring, uh, Joker, etc. We've we've enjoyed these miniseries in the past. The first episode was a banger. It was way too long, but it was a lot of fun. Go back yeah. and listen to our episode one and and yeah, episode three. We'll probably do that. We just decided we're going to give ourselves the weekend to study Scream Five, and then we'll put it out early next week. But we'll we will do the deep dive into Scream Five for you guys after a pair of oscar race checkpoints this week with some big nominations and some big winners and, so, and previewing scream five i mean we're gonna yes. we weren't gonna do another uh we were only gonna do three episodes for the screen mmo screams miniseries but because of the early reception we want to go over what some people are saying about the movies we want to go over our thoughts and hopes and predictions so we're gonna throw an extra uh at least half episode uh in one of the orcs i think of uh previewing scream five for ourselves yes i think that'll be the early week episode this week where we'll get that out Sooner mm-hmm. than later, and and do like a half hour on our our greatest hopes, like a prep episode yeah. style thing for screen 
So your hopes and dreams for Scream <laughs> 5. Uh, what you want is going to be hinted at in this episode for certain. Yes. But let's be honest. This one, we got to give our spoiler warning out much sooner, Michael. Yeah, so we're giving it out earlier than last time, but there was a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff for three, Scream 3 specifically, uh, if you're not familiar with the production ramp-up and the production pre-production story, that it's it's tough to kind of talk about that movie at all without getting into what happens both in the movie and outside of the movie. So uh, as opposed to last time where we had kind of like this 20-minute preamble about what our attachment to the franchise is, we're giving you the spoiler warning right now. Uh, It's going to be spoilers from this point out. So if you've not seen Scream 3 or 4 and you don't want us to ruin it for you, you you may want to check out one of our other episodes. Right. Check out the other episode uh, on Scream 1 and 2 because we know you've watched those heading Mm. into uh, this Preamble, like you wouldn't go into a non-spoiler section even on Scream three and four without doing that, would you? Mm, I would, but no, probably not a normal sane person. Yeah, yeah. So I think uh, <laughs> I think people are with us. So spoiler warning right up top. All right, let's introduce these movies. Scream three in two thousand, released on February fourth, did a one hundred sixty-one million dollar global rake at the box office, eighty-nine. Domestically, it had a $34 million opening weekend. And unfortunately, Mike, it got some of the lowest scores and reception of the franchise. The critics were 41% on Rotten Tomatoes, 56 Metascore, a B Cinema score, which is lower than the last two, mm. 37%, the, a very low audience score on Rotten Tomatoes, 5.6 out of 10. It did get a Teen Choice Award for Best Chemistry, Courtney Cox and David Arquette, which... We hope to win that ourselves one day. One yeah. day, I would like a mm-hmm. Best Chemistry Award, just in general. <laughs> I'd like to have chemistry with somebody. With any living human being. <laughs> Especially during clunky intros, but where our Skype just goes out. <laughs> like it just did right now, so sorry for the awkward. Best idea. Chemistry with a uh, Zoom-like feature app, yeah. <laughs> uh, so... That was a silver lining that it that it still got nominated for some uh, some audience awards on, on on the People's Choice Teen Choice level there, but Scream Three, Mike, not as well received as the previous two. Just certainly not critically uh, or or audience score wise or anything. You know, not as well received except in dollars. You know, mm-hmm. like it's. I think it's the highest scoring one, right? Because I think Scream One and Two were around the 140 mark, or am I misremembering that? 170 mark total. Oh, it was 170. Yeah. Okay, so I am wrong. So, uh, yeah, not as well received, but still doing okay numbers for what it was. Except that the budget, obviously, uh, the budget for Scream Three was higher than the budget for One and Two combined. It was a 40 million dollar budget for Scream Three, a 39 million dollar budget combined for One and Two. So, yeah, the returns even if they were the highest returns uh, of those series, which I was wrong about and they weren't, still wouldn't probably make up for the fact that the, they didn't do it didn't do as well as could have been hoped by the Weinsteins. Right, it was close enough, though, so which I'm sure they were mm-hmm. relatively happy about, and it was definitely profitable. Yeah, it made something. Which makes you wonder why Scream 4 took so long to make, but now that you see their box office, $97 million in 2011, you kind of talked through some of the Scream 4 ramp-up in the last episode, only 38 domestically, 18.6 opening weekend on a $40 million budget. Critical reception was a little better for Scream 4, 60% on Rotten Tomatoes, 52 meta score. B minus cinema score, though, and we're going to talk about mm. the, the audience uh, and our uh, views of Scream 4 as, as audience members. 56% on Rotten Tomatoes audience-wise and a 6.2 out of 10 
on hundreds of thousands of, of votes on IMDb. And there RT. was so much hope, I remember, where like people, the trades and different articles and stuff were so hesitant to call this a flop at the box office. And, and well, it could do well in secondary, but if you go by the old standard of two and a half times the budget, I mean, two and a half times of 40 million is a hundred million. This didn't do a hundred million combined. Right. I'm sure it made it's, its had, money back uh, on sure. home video, DVD, Blu-ray, all that streaming. But if you're if you're relying on nostalgia, and and 2011 too was a weird time for horror. I mean, we weren't quite in the nostalgia boom. We weren't quite in the horror renaissance that like Cabin in the Woods and and It Follows would kind of bring forth. And we were just remaking old horror properties like Nightmare on Elm Street with Jackie Earl Haley and the new Friday the 13th were just redone. They weren't reboots. They were, or, I mean, they were straight reboots, I should say, or remakes even. Right. Uh, and yet we had this property in screen, which was another legacy horror property that was kind of added a sequel on. And in Williamson's words, he thought he was kind of getting into a new trilogy to introduce new characters with and bring the uh, franchise forward into the next decade with, but that just wasn't to be. Once you stumble, too, we've seen this with franchises, once you stumble with a film, at least in terms of quality, even if your box office is close, like Scream 3's was, close to the first two, mm-hmm. it wasn't received the same way. So Scream 4 is going to suffer that lull, uh, especially mm-hmm. after the you know the, the, the long ramp up. It's, it's, it's a lot of time between movies there. So it does you know take some, some of the enthusiasm out of the audience, or at least it could. And I think you're going to get into some of the reasons, you know, why Scream 3 to 4 and definitely the roundabout journey of Scream 3 uh, factored into kind of some compounding of issues, I would say, at least on the story level. So we both rewatched Scream 3 a couple times for this episode. Yes. As a warm up question, Michael, you know, you've talked about how it's underappreciated, how it gets a bad rap because of some principles you hold dear. Uh, when yes. when viewing screenplays, so do you still feel that way after studying it for today's show? Or are you still looking at it as just this uh, this this kind of this miracle of filmmaking in a way? Well, that's that's where yeah, that's where I land on this. Is that prior to the prep for this episode, I always thought Screen Three was underappreciated because I thought it was it's impossible to write a third part to a trilogy first of all that satiates everybody Mm -hmm. uh high avengers endgame you should have been nominated for best original screenplay because you did uh but i liked the killer i appreciated the effort i thought it was a a, a huge effort to like put forth what they did and it's ballsy too to kind of retcon the story from screen one which is what this one attempts to do and i like i like the cast after prepping for this episode my God, the fact that this movie was made, made any money, and was coherent to an audience is, like you said, an actual miracle of screenwriting and movie making. I mean, it's movie magic to the nth degree. The behind-the-scenes backstory is ludicrous. You, you, you said in the pre-show that these guys were writing pages of the script and, and then immediately filming them. In some cases. So, like, before you even get to what happened on the set, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there was, because of the explosion of popularity of the cast from Scream 1 and 2, they got into all sorts, obviously, they all got a billion types of offers, and so you went from scheduling these up-and-coming artists and these people who are popular in maybe TV and doing spots and movies to, like, you're, you have to juggle the schedules of legitimate, bona fide movie stars at this point. And you had Nev Campbell on set for, like, two weeks of shooting before she had to go out and do something else. It got to a point in the lead-up to Scream 3 where Kevin Williamson and Nev Campbell could not 
I mean, the schedules couldn't coincide. Mm-hmm. It was either one or the other, as Williamson would go on to say. And so it was either this production could have Williamson there or it could have Nev Campbell. And so Williamson actually stepped down so Sydney could be a part of Scream 3, wow. just schedule-wise. There wasn't like any kind of interpersonal conflict. It's just th- these people were so popular. Kevin Williamson had Dawson's Creek and a bunch of other properties working in the mill. And Nev Campbell was doing a bunch of movies herself. So that's how it broke down. But yeah, when you get on the set and on the actual production of Scream 3, Aaron Kruger was hired as the writer. And if you listen to Wes Craven doing the audio commentary of Scream 3, he said that there were literally days where Kruger would be secluded in an office off the set, writing the script and writing scenes that were going to be upcoming, and they would basically literally take the pages from Kruger's hands run them over to Craven on the set where Craven and and the producers would go into rewriting and figuring out how they were going to shoot this thing. They were basically writing and filming a movie in real time, which is insane and why was this such a problem why did this happen why didn't they just follow williamson's original idea and script well they tried to as best they could but like i said williamson had to step down from the project and it was aaron Kruger's job to kind of retrofit williamson's idea into what screen three would become but williamson's idea was greatly impacted by the columbine tragedy right so that's why Scream 3 also has this maybe more, you might describe it as a more cartoonish or aloof tone to it than the first two, because there was worry from the studio, there was worry from the cast, there was worry from everybody about potential backlash to putting out a gory, disgusting murder movie surrounding high school kids who, in Williamson's original treatment, was going to be this basically cult that was going to antagonize Sydney, fake their own death, and then it was going to be this big reveal that Stu was the mastermind, the puppet master from Scream 1. He was controlling them all from jail. Matthew Lillard as yes. Stu was, and if you've seen the like the YouTube uh, photos with him with a you know pieced together face, I don't know if that comes mm-hmm. from somewhere else or if that's photoshopped, but that's I'm not why. sure either. But yeah, because the TV landed on his face and Sydney pushed it, you know, pushed it off the thing pretty hard and pushed it down. Oh, you can survive that. That's nothing. That's a flesh wound, as the Black Knight would say from Monty Python. <laughs> he's but dead, yeah, I mean, Mike. You know- no, he's dead. <laughs> I don't want to hear it. He's Especially not dead, Mike. Because his chin, I got I got news for his you. His chin was so out there, and his you mean <laughs> the fact that he had his neck lurching up towards that because he's overacting so much that makes him dead that's my but, tale of the tape uh analysis but you've made short films mike you've you've actually shot and edited and put them together like can you imagine writing something the day of getting it into shoot and not only do they have to like edit it on set and make it so they can shoot it and put the idea to life but craven was on the record saying they had to shoot two and three different versions of some scenes because obviously bob weinstein needed to give it the okay then just for craven's own sake they didn't know which ones which scenes and which shots they would actually be able to use in editing or want to use so they're not only coming up with stuff on the fly they're shooting stuff on the fly and they're shooting multiple versions of stuff on the fly so again like is screen three as great a quality as screen one i think objectively anyone would tell you that it's not but if you know the backstory of the upheaval in cast uh schedule the upheaval in producer because kevin williamson i believe was at this point or at least screenwriting uh behind the scenes the the writing of the script upheaval and the upheaval in like societal context how they had to play this so closely to the vest and like be more guarded in a way again this is a miracle that this movie has any coherence whatsoever, never mind coherence with the audacity that they actually do end up trying to go for. And it's a, it's explaining that 11-year gap right now, too. All of these factors are explaining that gap. And I, I'll admit, 
when I was in school, it was fun to uh, write a script with all your friends and then film that script over weeks, you know, mm-hmm. for your classes, etc., or during the summers, etc. That was a blast. When I got out of school, Mike, I did a lot of these 24, or, you know, 36 or 48 hour film festivals mm-hmm. where we would have to like, we would get like the ideas we could use. Like mm-hmm. they would give us like five things, a prop, a storyline, whatever. And they just make this like Mad Lib for your plot that you could, you know, make a short film about this five minute short film. And they'd give you like the weekend to do it. That was a Good miserable God. experience every single time. You know me as <laughs> <I bet. laughs> improviser. I'm not the best with that. But that I did that three years in a row. I did it in Boston, and it was awful. <laughs> it was an Ugh. awful. So, and imagine doing that now when you have something, right. you know, uh, never mind what they are as, as you know, monsters have been proven to be. But, like, take the demanding producers that the Weinsteins have been notoriously towards their directors and stuff. Sure. You have them putting $40 million into you, breathing down your neck. And that's a big budget for Miramax, yeah. as we've gone over in the past with the uh, Tarantino rewatch, etc. They, they're not accustomed to shelling out budgets of that size. They're very much an indie film production company studio there, mini studio, micro studio, whatever you want to call it. So, yeah, that is uh, that is some serious overhead for Miramax and, and some oversight. I'm sure that uh, it was a royal pain in the ass. So, like you're saying, this is a miracle just to get it done and in the can and for them to pull to pull it together to be as coherent as it was. That being said, we're going to, you know, draw attention to some plot holes here, and I guess we can it's get It's not in, the perfect movie. Right. Yeah, no. <laughs> we can get into our segments. Uh, but I do think they had, they had the Act 1 setups down. So this first segment, Who's There?, where we discuss the innovative Act 1 setups of these Scream movies because they're known for it. Mike, in Scream 3, let's start there. Cotton is in traffic. You have a voice changer on the other line. Turns into Ghostface after it seems to be this wrong number. And then he and his girlfriend are both killed with him driving through traffic. So it's this wild scene, but it becomes very, very thematic to what we're about to get for the rest of the film that these two characters die and die first. And they introduce uh, a very important cog. I mean, Scream 1 and 2 were more realistic. In Scream 3, you have this basically magic voice box that can mimic anyone's voice, but they at least give that exposition right away that you know it's going to play a larger part into the plot because you have the killer on the phone mimicking a woman's voice, mimicking Roger Jackson's voice, mimicking Cotton's own voice when he's talking to Christine in the house. Um, I think... Other than Scream 1's opening, which is just, you know, legendary. I think of 2, 3, and 4. 3 might be my favorite uh, cold open, I guess, or opening scene at least. It w- it was thrilling to see Cotton in danger. You're not necessarily believing that it'll it'll be him that gets killed. You think Schreiber was jacked, by the way, in 2000. <laughs> right. So, again, it, it, it adds stakes with the name actor that he was uh, becoming mm-hmm. there. And uh, it definitely adds thematic weight because he's from the last movies and he was falsely accused in the past, which at the time we don't know Roman is trying to get rid of all of, uh, you know, the people who've been given false credit, like the actors in his movie Mm -hmm. stab three and uh, certainly Cotton. But Cotton was given false credit for the movie and anybody who's been given that, that they deserve to die by his standards. So it's thematic in that way. Uh, that's a great point by you. And I think keeping the theme of what the killers are trying to do is something that was 
more concrete in one, I think it loses a lust its luster a little bit, but it was supposed to be a misdirect in two, how, uh, you know, oh, they're killing people with the same names as people from Woodsboro, except they kind of abandoned that halfway through because they wanted the cops to think that. But I think it it's, it's less tenable in three and four, but I do like that, you know, Roman, at least, you can make that thread work, that Roman's, you know, he's, he's basically fame-hungry. Yes, Roman, uh, he wants his time in the spotlight, which becomes a family trait for four. We'll get into mm-hmm. Jill there. But I think uh, in terms of the Scream 4 opening, the most ambitious yet, especially in terms of comedy, let's just put it, the most comedically ambitious because maybe maybe Scream 2 is the most ambitious. But Stab 6 and Stab 7 openings, you got the meta commentary by each group. You got the big stars and Anna Paquin and I forget her name, Michael, from uh, Sarah Marshall. Sarah Marshall herself. Uh, uh, Kristen Bell. Kristen Kristen Bell, Bell. thank you, uh, Frozen. So the big stars and then she stabs her in the stomach by accident. You realize that's still a movie. So it's a parody of a parody of a parody Am I overthinking it, or did someone who wrote it underthink it, question mark, that that Marnie says in a few minutes? uh, I I really enjoyed the comedy of that. I forgot about it, kind of going into the rewatch. You're a thousand percent right. It's it's shocking and it's hilarious when you first watch it, but it's also why I needed more Scream. Like, you can't, that couldn't have been the last Scream. I'm so happy we have another Scream to at least tile up loose ends because, like, I get that the openings are all commentaries in their own way on things, Mm -hmm. and that was kind of a commentary on where the horror genre has gone since the first Scream came out, and it was just sequel to death, and it was just shocks for shock value's sake, and I I get all that, and it's well done, but it had nothing to do with any of the characters, really. It's kind of an apology for some of the (laughs) overstepping of the mark in Scream 3, in a way. Could be, yeah. Yeah, good point. So it's it's a meta-commentary on many levels. Does it work entirely with the rest of the film? I don't think so. I think it would have worked better with a Scream 3, the way Scream 3's tone went, because the Scream 4 tone didn't necessarily follow, uh, you know, this this blueprint. It, it depends on the lens which you look through it. Like, so Kevin Williamson was back in full force for Scream 4. It was Williamson and Craven once again. I've been, for 11 years now, operating under the assumption that Scream 4 is Kevin Williamson's Scream 3 redo. Yeah. So, because because Kevin Williamson's real Scream Three went on to be the show the following, which was on Fox for a couple seasons, um, but the the Scream Four is basically taking the beats from Scream One and trying to recreate this new era, like Scream the the new era before we right. went to MTV for a show and whatnot. So, if you look at it through that lens, then like this is Williamson's new kicking off point for the new generation of Scream, even though it still has the old generation. Whereas Scream Three's opening was more of a straight-line plot device. Like, oh, I, there's a killer, Sydney's in hiding, right. this killer needs to find Sydney, and we're off and running. Right. The uh, the start of the massacres in, in 2 and 3 are, are much more deliberate, I would say. Yeah. And, and in this one, we, we know the massacre's going to get restarted. But- it's basically Billy and Stu killing Drew Barrymore. In one, I mean that's what the the opening yeah, but of the three and four was. but the false openings don't have anything to do with the rest of the exactly. movie. Is what I'm saying exactly. So the, exactly. that doesn't carry through. Agree. Anyway, we we do have a lot of plot to discuss because these movies meander a little bit. They they struggle with the plot. We'll we'll talk about it. There are certain rules though one must abide in order to survive a horror movie. Where there we, are certain rules yes. where we discuss these meta narratives and plot lines. So let's keep going forward with those in Scream Three. We have the falsely accused Cotton die, like I said. Then we have the actors 
in Stab 3, this movie within the movie. Now, we're going to hold the quote-unquote second killer theory that I've had to, you know, wrestle with more than you. I think you've thrown it to the side already. But let's... I've never acknowledged it, but yes, so, I'm excited for you to, to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, I just have a couple scenes. It's more more of a plot hole situation than it is. There is definitely on that, I, you know, we'll, we'll get to it like you said, but there's definitely the most plot holes in 3 and 4. But in 3, in the text, there is one killer, right? I mean, we're both in agreement Correct. on that. Correct. There's one reveal, and it's not just one reveal, and they forgot to reveal another killer, or Wes Craven deliberately did not reveal another killer like the YouTube video seem to say but all right we'll, we'll get there i will say that there's some over-the-top suspiciousness in these red herrings and in these suspects that makes scream three one of the most fun whodunits i've had in a while and remember <laughs> from last episode i had a lot of uh stakes for this when i re i watched the first two before the third one, my friends and I, we made a big deal of, you know, getting into this movie theater mm-hmm. for Scream 3, buying a ticket to something else. For the life of me, I don't remember what we bought tickets to. But Kevin and Sean, <laughs> if you're around there, if you're listening, then we, we, we had fun. But I, I look at the, the over-the-top suspiciousness in the guessing game where, where it looks like McDreamy, right? It looks like Patrick Dempsey. It looks like yes. Emily Mortimer. It looks yes. like Parker Posey for a minute there. Mm-hmm. Gail is even fingered in a big way because she's the only one to use the phone. But there's such damning, condemning, smoking gun evidence against all four of those characters. To have it be none of them is <laughs> is is fun uh, in terms of the misdirect. It's funny you mentioned Scooby-Doo. I don't know if you listened to the director's commentary. You mentioned that it was like a Scooby-Doo whodunit in the last episode yeah. about Scream 3. And that's uh, Wes Craven and one of the producers in the commentary mentioned Scooby-Doo as well. I mean, that's that's what this kind of is. And again, it's that, is it over the top? Yeah, of course it is. Is it too silly at times? Yeah, of course it is. But it, that's all by design and it had to be under the conditions in which it was being made in 2000. So I'm much more forgiving of it knowing that going in. Um, but to that point, you're absolutely, I mean, it should have been, Patrick Dempsey should have been the killer in this. I don't care how much of a red herring he was established as. I don't care that he was the cop. He absolutely, I, it, it should have been him. I liked how they kept him as that red herring until the very end, though. That's something they did do very well in mm-hmm. each of the movies. They did it with Kermit McDermott in, in Scream 2. <laughs> and, of course, they did it with uh, with both Randy uh, well, with Randy, right? He was the last red herring in Scream 1, yep. I would say. Yep. So it's become like this trademark. And they'll do it in Scream 4 as well with Robbie, Trevor, Kirby, Kirby, like back to back to back at the after mm-hmm. party there. But I think I agree with you. I think it gets a little tiresome. But I had fun with, you know, the uh, enjoying all the speculation about each one of those four characters in Scream 3, which, to be honest, is the goods delivered of Scream 3 is the fact that we're having fun with it. Yeah, I wonder if that's... If the get-out-of-jail-free card with that is the genre of the whodunit. Like, even if you make a subpar whodunit, it's still going to be an enjoyable whodunit? It is can. that a thing? Yeah. You know? Yeah, it can, because because you're, you're speculating. The fun part about coming back to this movie is I forgot I forgot Roman was the killer truthfully I mean oh wow okay I, so I haven't seen this movie in maybe 15 20 years so mm-hmm. <laughs> this happens when you watch so many movies guys and it's happened to me <laughs> not the first time this has happened to me where I forgot that's kind of plot. interesting so who did you who were you thinking going in that or like as you watched it going along who did you assume 
I was I was going through kind of the thought process on each one of those. I I, I was in totally spun around like a top rewatching Screen Three. I did not like, like it got to a point where I remembered it was Roman. Like okay. once once I think Emily Mortimer died, it was like oh mm-hmm. that has to be Roman Roman now. But right. otherwise. Like when when Mortimer's stepping up on the toilet seat, I'm like, oh my god, she's gonna be one of the two, and I forgot that there was just one. I, I totally forgot the plot, to be honest. Well, <laughs> <laughs> there there is Screen Three did something weird too in its plot in terms of truncating the suspects because once you're at the mansion and Dewey and Gale discover the voice box and the mask in that side closet, you've you you only have four possible suspects at that point. You have Roman, you have Emily Mortimer, you have Tyson, or you have uh, Parker Posey's character. And then in the next scene, mm-hmm. Emily Mortimer's killed. And you see Roman in the casket, which was cleverly done. But so, you, I mean, you, you have a very finite, truncated amount of people that it possibly could be, unless you wanted to think it was McDreamy at that point, Patrick Dempsey's character. Uh, but it, it, it's weird in the delivery in the in that... Everyone was on the table in one and two, and even four to an extent, but three, in a very quick way during its third act, really narrowed the field down. You, ha- I think you have to though when you're when you're not, you, you know, you could be more open ended when you have two killers. Because that's probably yeah, that's because a good point. if one if one doesn't surprise you, the other one still could in terms of delivering th- goods to the audience. And maybe the killer, the single killer theory, is Kruger thought during the writing that that's the subversion subverting of what they had already set up for their own kind of whodunit genre because we've had two screams in a row where it was two killers maybe the everyone was expecting a second killer as well so having it be one and then having this familial backstory that plays right into the video that randy left behind where it is only a single killer that's tearing up the past that could be them subverting what they set up i'm guessing he came up with that a little later because i'm, I'm yeah. thinking he was like the youtube videos were saying meant to be part of one of two killers like both of the previous movies. Gale literally takes his pulse when he's in the quote-unquote casket there, uh, but fake killed, takes his pulse and walks away. So she's not a paramedic, Mike. She's well, not. That's what we Amazingly, confirmed. they talk about that in the director's commentary, and Wes Craven and one of the producers said how Wes stood up in the editing, because the producer questioned that. It's like, how can you show Gale taking his pulse and then explain that Roman's the killer afterwards? And Wes Craven, I guess, stood up in the editing bay and showed him that if you press some kind of pressure point on the inside of your bicep, it stops your pulse from being felt on your wrist, which was given no explanation in the movie, obviously. But I was like, holy shit. And the the producer was like, and he did it to me and it actually worked. I couldn't feel a pulse on him. So I was like, oh, well, that's kind of cool to know. Well, that would be information useful <laughs> right, right. to the entire audience right. of the film. It would have been nice if we knew that 22 years ago. Nobody uh, nobody in their wildest imaginations right. could have gotten there if you didn't just know that. I agree. <laughs> Probably an oversight. Uh, I, I, all right. Can we look at these rules really quick? Randy's trilogy rules. And I love the fact that Randy pops back up. But, you know, you got this superhuman killer, quote unquote, for a trilogy. Mm-hmm. All he, all he had was a bulletproof vest and a voice changer. <laughs> yeah, you didn't like that, huh? Not. I mean, again, it's it's kind of funny to see how they deal with these rules, these hard and fast rules. But okay, anyone including a main character can die. None of this come, comes true except for Cotton in the opening scene. Yep, correct. And then the past will come back to bite you in the ass. So I, look, at, I, I get this last one as kind of a centerpiece, and I think that's where they were coming at it from the plot. And this actually gets into the seriousness of Scream 3. 
which unfortunately doesn't jive with the tone. So, look, I think the points for ambition are there. I think you're going to talk about the Trapeze Act in terms of the juggling of these themes because they go into some very heavy Me Too stuff about Hollywood and about its torrid past and despicable past in terms of the the parties of the 1970s that are referenced from these executives. Maureen Prescott's tragic backstory and her creation as a quote-unquote troubled person back in Winsboro as Woodsboro as uh, Sydney's mom like this is no laughing matter how do you have a Scooby-Doo plotline after getting into that like I don't understand the Fredrickson stuff and he's got the creepy fake rooms where you know the voyeurs yeah. watch the I mean that's grotesque and then you know they're we're, we're having fun with Dewey and Gale still so it's just it's- a tonal mess it is a tonal mess, especially in 2022. And it's, you know, I, I think in some ways it's made Maureen Prescott's story more empathetic uh, just because of the Me Too movement and coming over time. And that's something that, you know, everybody in Hollywood knew about to the point that it was written into this freaking screenplay in totally. 2000. When you look at that the, plot line through a vacuum, it works. Right. And it's right. and it's poignant and it's prophetic. I mean, and it was accepted in 2000, which is the grossest part, you know, like it was just it was just there. And everyone was like, oh, yeah, this makes sense. I can imagine this happening. I bet this does happen. No, I, I think it's a draw to like Carrie Fisher. I mean, she's been uh, on the record. I've read a couple of her books. She's been on the record about her abuse in, in, in the Hollywood industry from a young age. And and to the point where I think she wanted her voice heard. But the fact that this is a Miramax production, right. it adds right. a whole nother layer of scumminess Yep. To the you know to who's behind Miramax here and yeah. and how this movie is being and how these themes are being kind of submerged in a tonal mess when if these themes were just shouted out from a more serious film especially of one like this with the profile Scream Three would have had you know it might have it might have brought about more awareness and change two decades earlier yeah I I, I mean you're hitting the nail on the head and. It's it's a situation where I feel like because of what's happened with the Me Too movement, it has completely changed the lens with which you can view that aspect. I mean, never mind the Weinstein's involvement, uh, you know, which totally changes everything anyway, like you said. But it has changed the way in which this story could be viewed. And it's, yeah, it's gross. I mean, it's absolutely gross that that's kind of like just the backdrop and it was a throwaway backdrop for this story to happen. And then they go on having this Scooby-Doo story around it. But on the one hand, yeah, it's disgusting. On the other hand, Thank God we're getting to a point now where there's still more work to do, but at least that type of stuff is is raising red flags in all of our eyes when we watch this shit, you know? Right. And, and I think their intentions were clearly, you know, from the from the writers and they're just, like I said, the cast, especially Carrie Fisher being involved with that particular story. I think their intentions were good. I think Wes Craven's intentions were good. It's been a commentary throughout his career. This is something that, that was just bungled, unfortunately, in, in the final execution of it. Yeah, I think you. I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, I guess we should get into four a little bit. I got much less to say about four, but I, I'll be honest with you, Mike. I have, I have enjoyment in the scenes of the Scream Four finale, like the whole, uh, the whole Jill and Charlie thing. Some of those are great scenes, especially Jill's reveal, and then the Jill Charlie double cross, etc. And and it's. 
there's some high stakes there, and you you whittle down the suspects late, which again is a very it's a, a tremendous trick. Like I said, you got the Bing Bang Boom of uh, Kirby from Robbie and Trevor back to back to back them kind of taken off the board to where mm-hmm. it has to be Charlie, which had the Scream One opening setup where he was kind of he wasn't kind of he was uh, duct taped to the chair. You thought he was the boyfriend about to be done with. And he becomes the killer there. So that misdirect, I thought, really worked. The problem is, like, the Charlie character, there's just not enough there. And then the Jill character is just kind of aggravating, in my opinion. Oh, you didn't like Jill at all? I didn't like Jill. I don't like that. Again, the scenes work. I just, the fact that it's just a jealousy-related motive, it's just thin. Like, it's Hmm. just envy and jealousy and, and... like Rome, or even worse than at least Roman's like a three dimensional chess level of envy and jealousy because it's, it has to do with him being abandoned by his long lost mother and the fact that he's enraged over the treatment his mother suffered in Hollywood and the fact that he's a director and he's he's trying to make it in this industry and he's being, you know, he's having trouble with all these scum that he works with. So he wants revenge against all these people, never mind his long lost sister, who he has this like deep seated revenge for based on like 20 years or, sure. you know, worth of uh, anger and resentment. So I just think there's more to than just the cousin of Sydney who has to be noticed as Sydney Prescott's cousin. To say that she has to kill her for that reason. Why? Let me let me say a couple things. One, I hate the introduction of the cousin or the niece or the nephew or the whatever. Like Roman's introduction as like the half brother is as far as I'm willing to go with anything. But Halloween Resurrection tried to pull the same shit where it was like I'm Laurie Strode's niece. I, yeah. I can't stand that the introduction of the family member we don't know. And yeah, that did uh, jade me a little bit when I found out that. But while the motivation of Jill might be a little weak. Gail mentions in Scream 3, when she's having the tete-a-tete with the actor who's supposed to be playing Dewey on the set of Stad 3, celebrity or the pol- the new politics of the 21st century, which yeah. is, my God, has that become true? But, like, this, the commentary on the obsession with fame for 2011, mm-hmm. I think, is very ahead of its time. And I think that's a motivation that's only grown stronger as you watch it more and more when you see this ridiculous celebrity-obsessed culture that we are now a part of on a day-to-day basis here. If you take out the familial envy of Jill and you just like put it as somebody who wanted to be famous and wanted to be the final girl. Right. I don't mind that part of it. I think that actually works and that actually holds up pretty well. Yeah, I think it's thin as a motive, as a revenge motive in the script. But mm-hmm. as a meta narrative, you're right. That's yeah. that is that is juicier as as a you know side character wanting to be the final girl. And the last scene, we the last shots we see are, you know, the news celebrating Jill as the final girl. And it's that's I mean, if that's not a commentary on how the media just screws everything up. Sure. You know, like they're they're the ones to get relay the story. And so all of us are hearing what a great heroine this Jill character is. I don't know if four is going to have any part to play in Scream five. Uh, I saw a couple of reviews that were like, you have to watch Scream four first. Really? So who knows what that means? But yeah. Wow. I, I wonder if they'll pick up on that. If, if, you know, if Jill's this hero in everyone's eyes and Sydney killed her, there should be some kind of explanation coming forward as to <laughs> why Sydney's allowed to walk the streets. I'm rooting for Scream 5 to tie up some of the killer motives because that's mm. it gets a little messier as the sequels go on, unfortunately. Yeah, agree. 
And uh, I, I wish they would lean more into the genre meta narratives and th- and the overall thematics than the family tree stuff. Like I'm kind of done with the family I tree agree. stuff. I, we're we're kind of done with that as an industry anyway, with the Star Wars stuff going too far, right? I mean, the Rise of Skywalker kind of silly oh gets getting God, silly. Yeah, so forgot about that. All right, I, I will say this though: four does an expert job, and it's because Williamson's back in the saddle. I would say of taking. Again, you know, character assassinating red herrings and just one by one taking them off the board. And they all act suspiciously. They all have access to grind from, you know, Allison Breeze, you know, Sid's literary agent telling the owner of the bookstore, I'd kill his cat if he didn't get it right, you know, about the display <laughs> for her books. And Kirby's webcasting and he says something slimy to Olivia. Don't look at my breasts. I have a brain, Olivia. And that's like, what the hell's going on? Uh, Kirby should get it now. He'd get, get dead, that is. No, not Kirby, Charlie. Or, uh, uh, Robbie, yeah. Robbie, yeah, Robbie, Robbie. Kirby, Robbie. Kirby's right. the. Yeah. But even Kirby has some things to say. Just, you know, uh, Hayden Panettiere there. She can't drive worth a shit. You think she tried, you know, risking their lives. Anyway, mm-hmm. the boyfriend, Trevor, is the the most obvious one the cops horace and perkins they take a lap around the perimeter at quite the uh advantageous moment if they were ghost faces themselves just one by one it's really well seeded into this plot like it took 11 years but at least we have this cohesive whodunit a very well written well structured whodunit again from williamson the whodunit aspect that works better in four than three i agree with that yeah I also love the uh, performance from Charlie's uh, Rory Culkin character. He's, like, upon rewatch, like, I rewatched Scream 4 twice for this episode. He's unblinking. He's giving that Billy and Stu type of performance where he's kind of... Such a good creep. He's taunting the audience. (laughs) He's taunting people to kind of figure him out. But it's the same performance Patrick Dempsey gave, right, in 3. So they just gave us that misdirect where they set us up and now they pay it off. And they're they're doing... They're going back and forth with keeping you off balance like it was the boyfriend in one and so you think it's gonna be the boyfriend in two but it's not the boyfriend it's the geek in two and it's not a it's actually not the 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 boyfriend and the friend it's the geek yeah randy's filling and it's sydney's filling in this one <laughs> so they are picking and choosing williamson is picking and choosing i think purposefully to to keep you most off balance and keep you guessing and and it's, he does a wonderful job of that if they ever did the same thing they just did <laughs> right. Well, that's the. That would how be many the plays new... do they have left? That has to be the last play, right? <laughs> you, it's it's going to happen at some point. Just repeat what you just did. Maybe right. do it better, and then <laughs> exactly you'll, you'll have a spinning <laughs> round and round. All right. Let's uh, let's talk some Sydney Prescott here. And this segment is called "I'm Sydney Prescott." Of course, I have a gun. Uh, where we talk about the Scream Queen and how she's anything but a favorite little victim. And I'll kind of pick up where we left off last time. She kicks some ass in both of these movies again, Mike. In Scream 3, she wins a fight against Roman there, certainly first time they meet. She she kind of kicks his ass. And then at the end, she holds, you know, she goes 15-round fight with him in that creepy Love that. screening room there uh, before she, you know, she eventually needs some help because un- unbeknownst to her, He's wearing a vest, but she kind of pulls the same trick on him. And then in four, like the first time she meets that Charlie killer, she kicks him right in the face, whoops him up and down the stairs. The rewatch of that was so satisfying to see Sydney Prescott run across the street from her aunt's house. From Go right into the fire. Right into the fire, square off face to face with the killer and win the fist fight <laughs> immediately. And that's... It's again, it's the progression that Craven did and why I'm, I love the, the Sydney character. 
you have to keep going with that. You have to get her more intense and more willing to be an ass kicker if she's going to survive this and not cower in fear of it and like be this this pillar of strength in this way. Not that she has to, you know, confront Ghostface in the way she does. That's just like some superhero shit. Yeah. But like she's a badass her and she's improving her close quarter combat skills, which you mentioned. And as soon as she picks up the phone afterwards, when she gets to Olivia's house and sees her gutted, she's talking shit to Ghostface right away, knows that she's about to be attacked. Probably he comes out and she kicks his ass again and she gets <laughs> stabbed at the end of the movie and she's still kicking ass right. and start trying to fight and survive and claw. I mean, this, this, Sydney Prescott's one of my favorite characters in movie history. I think she's handled so well and progresses in so perfectly within her arc. And it's just like, Man, what a tough bitch. And that's why it's hard to dislike some of these sequels because they they're getting the big things correct. Mm-hmm. And they and they I agree with that. They're progressive in this regard. I mean, even in 3, like it's completely understandable that after going through what she went through in 1 and 2, she wants to seclude herself, hide away from everybody. But as soon as Ghostface knows where she is, she's like, "Okay, let's fight. I'll come down, I'll come back to society, I'll go to the cops, and I'm going to find you." Fight or flight, she's fighting. And yeah. like you're saying, uh, t- t- tough, badass B, uh, I think that's it's thrilling stuff. It's progressive in the genre. And it's not just this runaway final girl uh, that just keeps finding better ways to run away, even though she's got the added levels of defense mechanisms and she's got the psychosis to go along with it. In three, she's having the nightmare. She's haunted by her dead mother. How does that stuff work for you, where it's ultimately a reveal of Roman underneath there with the kind of white sheet uh, and so ghost face? Three is, I think, where we're playing the most with whether or not Sydney's suffering some kind of psychosis from all this trauma that she's been dealing with, because we have a scene that's clearly a dream sequence with her mother at the window, right? Oh, she wakes and up then, from the dream. Yeah, the dog right. is. I mean, that's, that's clearly under, yeah. right. Clearly a dream sequence, and then there's some stuff that. I hope is her imagination because otherwise it makes no sense how it's portrayed within the movie uh, when she's on the, the Woodsboro or the, the set of the house in Woodsboro on the uh, film set when she's attacked by Ghostface there. I believe there's some stuff that's actually happening, but if Ghostface is actually under that sheet... He has to be, though, because later but how on... Is she hearing? how is she hearing her mother's voice in the distance and then Billy's voice from C- Stream 1... That's all playing. He all he just happens to have all that on tape that he can play through the surround system. I think that's a plot hole, and I, I'm going to go through it in worse scenes. But I, I guess I'll save it. But it doesn't. It does not work. I agree with you. Yeah. But it, I mean, I, I think it works visually because yeah, I think it's but a it can't very be a hallucination visual. though. But in my mind, I want it to be that the when she's attacked, you know, because she goes crashing through the catering set that's right outside the uh, the house. I think that's real. But in my mind, after she jumps down and hits the bed. Ghostface runs off because it's inexplicable again how Ghostface could actually be there. The cops get there in such a short amount of time. They run upstairs and then they can't find anybody. No, you're hitting it on the head. I mean, that's why yeah. there had to be two designed killers in the conception of this. Because if, if one killer was down there, there's no way he darts up fast enough. Or maybe it's an editing problem because they edit it together too fast. There are editing problems that really take away like as meticulous as craven was in one and two to make sure the killers line up every step of the way with where you see them on screen three and especially four there's just some stuff that just cannot possibly be yeah i wasn't as big of a fan of that 
either. Uh, I will say I like the four setup. I like that she comes back to Woodsboro on the. I book like tour. that it took until four to get back to Woodsboro too. They that, yeah. they had enough restraint. I mean, three was going to be in Woodsboro, and they had you know they had to rewrite the entire thing, so they set it in Hollywood to set it as far away from you know a, a high school backdrop as it could be. But I like that they actually did eventually get back to Woodsboro, and it took what fifteen years to get there. And it makes sense that she's estranged from her family, estranged from mm-hmm. her old friends because her long lost brother just tried to kill her the last time. Mm-hmm. So she's processing all that stuff through the book and through the new career uh, assignment, essentially coming back home for the anniversary, which again is, is a major, majorly courageous thing to do. I just I, I don't want that to be the deep seated resentment that that creates the new killer. You know what I'm saying? I, again, I just have a problem with Jill's motivations there. But for Sydney to face her fears in that regard, that's just so Sydney, and it, and it really works yeah. for. Agree, I agree with that. I, I, every step of the way, it's been pretty amazing. I mean, I would put Sydney Prescott up there with like any heroine in any of these. You know, is she Laurie Strode levels of badassery? I think so. Yeah, she works. Her character works, and I'm really hoping they get her right again in, in Scream Me too. 5. Me too. Uh, we have some oozing to do, which is just a, <laughs> out of context. If you forget. No, no, no. No, no, no. Proper context. If you forget where that comes from, uh, this is the Dewey and Gale segment. Uh, we talk about them and their arcs. Uh, I do think I like a lot of Dewey and Gale, but I dislike more Dewey and Gale in 3 and 4 than I did in 1 and 2. Now, why is that? Because... They both have egg on their face to where you would think they would avoid it. Like, Dewey should listen to Gale by the third movie. He should listen to Gale at that point, I guess. Or by the fourth movie, excuse me. Uh, And uh, in the third movie, I I, I think Dewey's shown to be a total buffoon at times, which I guess is endearing to an extent, but it it just goes a little overboard with the zoink stuff. Like it, it's so Scooby Doo. See, I want to push back on that because I think three is the only time that Dewey actually looks like a real cop because he's actually he shoots the killer from down the hill and he actually hits him and then he when falls the down the, the hill like Chris Farley. So it's well, just, he's still Dewey. Yeah, I don't know if I need that so many times. Like if it happens to him once, like that's why I thought Scream One was like kind of the perfect mix because he couldn't help the. The, the, the scared facial expression once, and that's an iconic shot at the door, right? Mm, but for the mm-hmm. rest of the time, he's still a pro. But I th- I feel like that happens three times, definitely, that I'm remembering it in Scream 3, where I'm like, come on. Well, I wonder if that was a focus of Scream 5, too, because he's the one who's doing the Randy's rules in the trailer for Scream 5, and he looks certainly more serious and gritty than he has in any of these four yes. preceding movies. He looks like uh, an action hero, retired yeah. action hero. Who has to come back for one more right. mission? <laughs> right. Yeah. So I, I, I get, it just gets a little tiresome for me uh, with with the Dewey, uh, you know, making fun of Dewey. I, I just want to see him to have that ultimate redemption. It was even muffled in 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 three because he gets the final kill of Roman, but it, the girls have to tell him to shoot for the head. Man, it's just like you know, I want Dewey to get his moment. I don't think it's going to happen. And in four. He's like making every mistake in the book. He's two or three steps behind the killer. He's very stubborn. He's not listening to Gale. It's frustrating. The town of Woodsboro would riot if he were still the police chief (laughs) after watching that woman be thrown from the sixth story of the parking garage during a live press conference. And then checking her pulse like she could possibly be alive. (laughs) 
<laughs> and hey, credit to the stunt woman. Uh, apparently, that was a real stunt woman who jumped from the sixth story of the parking garage and landed on a bunch of boxes down below for the shots. What? And she was a dummy. So yeah, amazingly. Oh my god, I had no idea that that, that should have been publicized more off that she, yeah. she deserves a stunt ensemble <laughs> oscar right there i agree i agree holy cripe uh gail also frustrates me a little bit in four like she's got writer's block and then you know the- i like that because gail is struggling with sydney's newfound fame in her territory i mean gail's one two and three she's the one who wrote the book on it right she even says as much in four but she's clearly lost her luster a little bit to the point where the film club of woodsboro high has no interest in interviewing her if they can get sydney instead so yeah it makes sense that she's flailing and fledging a little bit i guess if you want to draw that out because she's so desperate you could have that be an explanation as to why dewey doesn't listen to her like he should but i'm with you i think dewey is written too stubbornly for his own good and for when it comes to Gail. Yeah, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense for me. They've been through too much. We've seen them go through mm-hmm. too much. The fact, like, it's all, it's, it's too convenient for the plot. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, that's a problem for me. I, I mean, they get their kind of final scenes together because, you know, it comes back to the hospital, which is, which is cool. And I thought mm-hmm. that execution was, was pretty sound, pretty solid. And that's who we want to see anyway. We want to see the the killer square off with those three, which I'm hoping we still get in uh, in Scream Five here somehow. What did you think about Deputy Judy Hicks's involvement as this love interest, somebody who's crushing on Dewey, and then still being there in the final scene anyway? Like I just think it's unnecessary. Like it's it's un- I mean, she can crush on Dewey. That's fine. But why is like he doesn't really take it seriously, but Gail takes it seriously, and that bothers me. Like, it bothered me because it it reminded me so it was so reminiscent of The Office when on the eighth season they're gonna have the guy holding the boom mic be a love interest of Pam to threaten Pam and Jim's relationship. Like, no, we've been through too much with Pam and Jim at this point. Right. We've been through too much with Dewey and Gail at this point to believe they're gonna that's gonna happen. That's gonna know? break them up. You know, right. she makes some lemon squares, or she's yeah, right. and, and it's kind of grimy anyway because she's his employee, and it's no, it's this doesn't yeah. it doesn't add up for me. It doesn't doesn't work. Uh, what does work is that they're having marital problems. We knew that was gonna happen. They were destined for him. Even the proposal at the end of three, which was very satisfying, I would say. Despite everything, it really worked. Despite what David Arquette actually wanted to happen because he was, I guess there was a shot, there was a take of that scene where he turned to the camera and was talking directly to Bob Weinstein and saying, Bob, you have to have the killer come in and just murder everybody in this last scene. (laughs) That would have been something else. The the (laughs) abrupt ending with that awkward Patrick Dempsey facial expression does make you wonder. I know I've seen the rest of the... The mm-hmm. script for that it's, it was never meant to be, or, or at least as far as I can tell. But I, I will say this: the the jealousy of Dewey and Gale, vice versa, of each other in three makes much more sense because it's fun. It's fun to have Parker Posey playing Gale Weathers in Stab yes. Three. Yes. Be like the fact that she's dependent on Dewey and and she recognizes him as his rock, and he has the fun, you know, little uh, quote there about how women find him. Just he gives them a centeredness. <laughs> like I, I wrote it down. I, I I lost where it is here, but that's. A funny quote. Oh, if you, if you weren't so concerned with your pretensions and appearance, you'd be able to appreciate the positivity and emotional <laughs> centeredness I provide a woman. I mean, that's a funny quote. That's a funny little plot line that I thought worked, you know, the best. Which is why Scream Three is, it can be very funny and very rewarding. I I completely agree. I also think it's 
you know, just taking a step back and viewing this from a meta circumstance, I mean, you're watching art imitating life and life imitating art in a way because Courtney Cox and David Arquette meet because of Scream. Yeah. They get married because of Scream. They're newlyweds just back from their honeymoon in Scream 3, and they're div- in the middle of divorcing one another in Scream 4. Oh, no. So, like, <laughs> the fact that they were able to... Credit to both of them for putting these uh, on film and being able to work together through all this, but, like, it's it's really a fascinating case. I don't know of many... Not that I'm up to date on all the Hollywood gossip and relationships and stuff, but, like, this sticks out to me that, like, you're actually watching two people who, like, have made a life together and are still in each other's lives. If you watch the... Well, they have the, a son cannot, together. Or, right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're raising a family together. If you watch You Cannot Kill David Arquette, that documentary that came out last year, Courtney Cox is prominently featured in that. Like, there's... It's 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 pretty incredible to watch this all play out in real time on camera, right? So, so that the, your guess for Scream Five is that they're divorced uh, and dead, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, lot, a lot of high stakes here. Okay, we were gonna do the let's play a game segment, but it's too muddled for it's this a episode. mess. It's it's I I highly 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 suggest anyone who likes to go through this stuff, go look up the uh, the Reddit stuff about Scream for Who Kills Who and Scream 4, and go look up Zach Cherry's video of Who Kills Who. He does his best to bend over backwards trying to explain how these things could happen and how messy the edit gets that we actually see from Scream 4 in terms of what could have possibly happened with the killers killing whoever in Scream 4. But, I mean, there are so many inconsistencies and incongruities that it's just... There's some kills that are just impossible to keep track of, or at least Charlie would have to be like literally Superman. Yeah, it's it's either a mystery or Jill's much heavier, heavily more heavily involved yeah. somehow. Right. Or there's a third killer. No, of course not. Yeah, let's not be. let's yeah, not sure, make that not? YouTube video just yet. <laughs> but all right, let's jump into some nostalgia. Uh, it was Jennifer Aniston's Aniston's body uh, where we talk about how Scream is so aughts or 2010s in this case. Uh, look, I, I don't think the technology really is decidedly aughts. In Scream 3, you have, like, fax machines and bulletproof vests. You know, yes. these are, you know, techn- technological advancements from the 80s, or at mm-hmm. least when fax machines became popular. And bulletproof vest was something that was true for the 1900s, the early 1900s, but kind of became more popular with Kevlar in 76 from my research you Look have at you wow okay you have cloned cell phones which i guess is something that makes sense but caller id <laughs> look if 2022 they came out and said it was a cloned cell phone that couldn't be tracked i would still buy that as an explanation in a movie so because i have no idea what it means and i'm technologically inept <laughs> it's like this goofy <laughs> fantasy thing so there's like this fantasy stuff and there's this retro stuff the fantasy stuff the big stuff we've already talked about the voice changers they still don't have these i mean you can buy voice changers but you can't buy voices that from other people and then you can impersonate them there's got to be an app out there i would think that like does something close to it but yeah i mean they don't it's not like you can buy it on the store shelf like that device looked like it was fresh off a walmart packaging or something you know and you shouldn't you should not be able to buy that yeah no i don't want this 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 face smash stuff that's out there already (laughs) deep fake stuff uh we're all screwed but if the voices uh the voice matching is involved that's that's a problem yeah let's not have that fall into the wrong hands uh scream 3's soundtrack is so aughts i also would have been very terrified if i heard scott stapp yelling at me out of nowhere on my stereo when I wasn't expecting it. Like that Creed song comes on in the opening of Scream 3. All right. Embarrassing admission time. Did you have a, a moment in, in your past life when you were a Creed fan? 
What a moment. Mike, when I rewatched that scene, I went and liked a bunch of Creed songs on Spotify. What do you mean, my past life? (laughs) So we're both admitting this right now. There was a year or so. Like, I never saw them live or anything. And I completely regretted ever being their fan, you know, past, like, seventh or eighth grade, Mm -hmm. that is. Or what was it? I think it was middle school, right? Anyway, I'm I'm remembering middle school. So this, like, 2000 wasn't there. Let's see. I'm on my... uh... I'm on my Spotify right now, looking at the oh songs God. I've You're liked still recently. Listening, listening to Creed, aren't you? I, ju- I have two from Alter Bridge, which was Creed no. without Scott Stapp. Uh, Stand here with me, my sacrifice, one Ooh, last breath, higher, with arms right wide now. open, faceless man, say I, what if, and are you ready? Oh, and one. This so is, that's, you know. This is humiliating. <laughs> I, again, I wouldn't have liked those had it not been for this movie. So thank you, Kevin Williams, or uh, I guess just Wes Craven for three. Godsmack, <laughs> Slipknot, System of a Down, Incubus, Fuel. I was a fan of all of them at one time or another. Well, not Slipknot. I was never a Slipknot fan. But in terms of like the music showing up on playlists or Mick, remember when we used to make CDs? Burn oh, yeah. 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 Remember that? CDR phase? versus CDRW. Yeah. It's also funny how the Scream soundtracks kind of gelled with the times, too, because 99, 2000 was like new metal and that was the new hotness. But if you go back, 96's Scream was more indie bass and maybe grungy. 97's Scream 2 was much more college, you know, D- Dave Matthews band, Foo right. Fighters type stuff. And now you have the new metal era coming in. So this soundtrack is all Godsmack, Slipknot, et cetera. Scream 4's soundtrack is just not something in my wheelhouse at all. So we we both are graduated at this point from at least one school, and, and you're on to the next one. I am, mm. like, working a desk job, and I have no idea who these bands are. Are, they, are these just deep-cut bands that nobody knows who they are? But the sounds, the Novocaine's Six Day Riot, Say Hi... Every time I hear the name of a band I don't know, I always think to myself instinctively, I bet John knows these bands. Yeah, of course John knows these <laughs> bands. My brother John, also John. <laughs> if I had a dollar for every time he introduced me to a band that sounded like somebody taking a bucket of tools and just throwing them against the wall in a garage. <laughs> yeah. No, I just went to a concert with him recently. It did not go well. Yeah. <laughs> just a ter- it's just an understatement. But I think... Uh, Look, I think Scream 4's soundtrack is just, I'm too old for this shit yeah. now. I'm, I'm like yeah. the Lethal Weapon characters. So maybe Always yell at me for being stuck in 2003, but now look who's come around. Huh? I'll make fun of myself <laughs> in this regard. Uh, Scream 4 tech. I, I don't know how this became a tech and music segment, but here we go. Like the webcasting, the, the fact that they're broadcasting the kills, that's not new necessarily. Like we've seen movies from 15 minutes where they're videotaping the kills all the way back to man bites dog where they're making a mockumentary about a a killer. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is not necessarily new to the horror genre. I wish they leaned into it a little bit more than just like the one red Harrington, Robbie character kind of being involved with it. Especially with how prevalent, you know, going live and streaming and everything is now, like you can't go anywhere without somebody talking into their phone and talking to their fans and followers and stuff, Twitch, uh, Snapchat, and TikTok and all that. Even if they joked about it more like Gale and Dewey just couldn't follow along with it because they're out of touch, that would have been funny. If they remade Scream 4 right now, it would almost be like a Screen Life segment to it, right? Where the Do you remember that movie? Diane Lane had that movie where there was a killer who was like live streaming a murder that Uh, was going to, they had to like find it. That's know. that's what I envision a remake of Scream 4 would be. 
Yeah, they they could have leaned into the tech, but yeah. Um, on a more meta scale, in terms of just the industry at large, it's funny to watch the differentiation between Screams One, Two, and Three, Scream Four, and what we've seen so far from Scream Five. Because Scream One and Two, it's still VHS, or at least it looks more VHS or thirty-five millimeter or whatever. Yep. Uh, Scream Three, I think, is looks more digital. Scream Four, we're getting to the point with filters now. Everything's got that like soft orangey hue glow on it. Hmm. And then Scream Five, as was the style at the time. Grandpa Simpson and Scream Five is like now blue and dark and gritty, like everything else is. It's so funny to just watch the progression of that. Mm-hmm. I just I can't help but notice it. If you ever can do a side by side between a still from Scream Four and Scream Five, especially one is like orange tinted and one's blue, blue almost black tinted. Well, I tell you, I had to for the artwork for these uh, social media marketing stuff that we're doing for these. I had to make sure I wasn't using Scream 3 and 4 stuff for our first episode and vice versa. So I, I, I noticed what you're saying. I pick up what yeah. you're putting down there. There you go. Uh, I will say a refreshing aspect of Scream 4 is that they cast younger actors, and a lot of these actors are child actors all grown up, which I think is a, an int- intriguing meta commentary about uh, Hollywood. But a lot of 20 and 21-year-olds instead of – 25 year olds which uh the jenny mccarthy line is really funny i you know i don't like that i have to be killed naked i don't like that i have to yes be 35 playing 21 year olds and i don't like you know, she goes she's like you don't like your character roman says <laughs> and, and yeah i mean it, it's stuff like that calling out the the ridiculousness of the hollywood industry and and some of these tropes and casting decisions I, I like how they're finally learning from it towards towards the end of this series to the point yeah. where, you, again, you, I think you got a lot of 20 and 21-year-olds in the next one. Nico Tortorella is my lone complaint and my lone objection to that because they played Trevor in Scream 4, and that mm-hmm. looks like a grown-ass man. I mean, that looks like a guy that's 30 years old walking the, high, the halls of high school. I, I, don't, I didn't check how They were how 23 old. at the time of okay. filming, so it's not that outrageous, but... He, that looks like someone that could just. I'm just saying kick it's my better. ass now. <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying it's better than 27, 28, 26, it which is. is just silliness. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You know, it's this is not Andrew Garfield playing Spider Man, mm-hmm. or Tobey Maguire. Even worse, Tobey Maguire <laughs> playing Spider Man in high school. Uh, I'm getting a little woozy here. Yeah, woozy. Let's add some final worst before we do some final best. So Carrie Fisher's a best and a worst. I think. You know, adds yes. gravitas to the scenario. Yes. It's kind of ridiculous that she just. Oh, She's you- the if had had Gail Weathers not gone into this random basement of this random movie set. <laughs> yeah, they don't find anyone. They don't find the killer. They don't find anything about Maureen Prescott. They find nothing. Princess Leia is the linchpin to the Scream Three plot, which is. It works again on a you know behind the scenes level. It doesn't work in the movie. Like, right. is it Princess Leia or not? And then Randy's cousin just shows up, or sister just shows sister, up. Sister, and I hate that. There's so many. There's so many lows. I enjoy three more than four, but I think the lows of three bother me more than the lows of four. Except that I just remembered about how Anthony Anderson is killed in four, and I think that's the worst thing about any of the Scream movies. Yeah. Um. But yeah, Randy's sister inexplicably just happens to be in a trailer on a set that they no main character was ever supposed to find out about had they not put these two pictures together these two headshots and realized that it was sunrise studios Mm -hmm. 
And she just is there with a tape from Randy for Sydney. What are we doing? What are we talking about? And they are not even well photoshopped photos either. They're pretty <laughs> ridiculously, you know, look like they're green screened nonsense, mm-hmm. background added kind of yeah. silliness. So that that makes it worse. Let's talk about the second killer theory. Yes, we, please. We mentioned the fact that um, that that one scene in the onset of Stab Three at Sydney's. Uh, childhood home which makes no sense to me really like why in stab three are is she still at her childhood home with her same baby girl bedroom like why does that even happen how does that i like that yeah i don't know that's inexplicable that's beside the point he literally darts somewhere the the ghost face that's pushed off onto the bed yeah darts somewhere and then a, a second and a half later you hear the voice and then you see what will manifest later as Roman under Ghostface, under the white sheet, kind of the Halloween one, you know, callback mm-hmm. in a way, which is just impossible unless he's got superhero skills. So that's pro- that's plot hole number one. But Sydney gets a Ghostface call immediately after Roman is arrested or taken to questioning by the cops. The n- very next scene, like Roman's taken away on set of Stab 3. The very next scene, I just rewatched it this morning, Saturday morning, Sydney gets a phone call. So did Roman use his one phone call to terrorize Sydney? Which would be an impossibility, because what did he do? Bring the voice changer with him to the police station? And they figured out that it came from a cloned cell phone, like when when Roman called Jenny McCarthy's character, Sarah character. So he, he can't use the same cloned cell phone to call Sydney's home. It makes no sense. I guess it's you could say that Roman had been released by that point. Maybe he got released later that night. So because it's an that, editing problem then, because it's a second later she gets. Well, the there are there are certainly editing problems in four. So this is a blatant, blatant, still, yeah, blatant I think, editing problem. I think it's a good point, but and actually that's something I never considered. I'm I'm very proud of you for bringing that up. I've never considered that. Yeah, we also have Roman calling Sydney at the police station. There's like Roman doesn't have any built-in cameras at the police station, right? Like, how does he know that she's not going to tell the rest of the police? Like, we she puts on a bulletproof vest, the least she could do. Like, she should tell every. Like, how does how does she not put together that? I mean, she's thinking there's two killers, I guess, but it's just like on the gravitas. Like that doesn't make sense. It's just thin. Like, the fact that she would be brought to save the damsels in distress, which I like is Gail and Dewey in this instance. It works. I agree with that. Who do you theorize the second killer should or was supposed to have been? Well, that's what I think. They were kind of keeping the balls in the air. And they were like... You don't think they decided? I don't think they decided because I made them... I I think they had three very obvious suspects and they were going to play around with us on them. I mean, I think... uh, I think the fake Gail Weathers, I think the obviously the fake Sidney Prescott, Emily Mortimer, but Parker Posey, Emily Mortimer, Emily Mortimer to a much larger degree, and of course Patrick Dempsey. Like it, it, eventually it came down to whether Patrick Dempsey or not was the other killer. That was the big, you know, they both had guns drawn each other like, you know, two Spider-Mans pointing at one another in a gif. I know there was one, I think it was from the commentary that they said that they toyed with the idea of Emily Mortimer being one of the killers because they liked the sick and twistedness of Roman being Sydney's real life brother and Emily Mortimer playing Sydney and being a lover of Roman. 
like they like the sickness of Sydney's. Roman found his sicko, and his right. sicko was cast He's in this talent yeah. search. Yeah, I mean, right. it, that was all coming together, and that's what we were thinking as we are watching it. You know, it made sense. So, again, it, you know, making them very obvious and then turning them into red herrings, it works as kind of a plot movement to an extent, but it, it, they just kind of went overboard with it. And I, I think it, it's just it, it indicates that they were writing this thing as they were going. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely that aspect to it, and I that's kind of why I also chalked up that scene, which has always given me problems. Even though I love I love that scene where Sydney's hearing her mother's voice and the killer's underneath the sheet in the on the set. Mm-hmm. But I, I always chalk that up to like Sydney's psychosis, because the reality is, if you have a psycho killer walking towards you underneath a bed sheet. That means that that psycho killer cannot see. So Sydney should have just speared him and tackled him and started beating the shit out of him. True. It's a good point. <laughs> uh, I got I got issues with Scream 4. We've kind of gone over them already. I just, I guess my biggest, like, why does Allison Bree run out of the car? Just stay in the car. But yeah. All right. That's kind yeah. of a minor issue because she, she does make a break for it. She almost gets free and she gets caught at the last second there. Just curious. Who do you think that kill was? Was that Charlie or was that, in fact, Jill? I, mean, I be- There's a conflict. I think it was Charlie, hmm. um, even though he's supposed to be accounted for outside the, the hospital. But I, I think in a deleted scene, there's a uh, there's a shot of Jill in the hospital getting her knife wound attended to. So unless she, like, escaped the nurses. Yeah, because I tend to think that's Jill. That that one's Jill because... Th- so Jill was strong enough to throw Allison Brie off the sixth story of the garage? I don't know. I mean, well, that's that's what I mean. And this is off. where the problems I mean, with editing but and stuff she was, in, yeah. she, We didn't see Ghostface lift her up and kill her, or throw her, did we? I don't remember. What do you, well, she had to have fallen somehow. And I guess she could push her off. I, I don't know. Maybe she, she's strong enough. I don't know. <laughs> what does she bench? It would have been funny if it was just this like small petite Emma Watson with these giant biceps and triceps. Emma Roberts. Yeah, no, Emma, Emma Roberts, Roberts is not. Emma Roberts. She does not look like she could lift. Uh, no, <laughs> but, that, but that's just. I don't know. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to, you know, discredit wiry athletic girls. For, no, sure. no. I Allison mean, sure. Brie's not weighing like you and me. It's not like she's throwing me off the roof. Yeah, that's true. That's that's true. That's true. Only powerlifters can throw us off roofs, but I want right. to see the uh, the deleted scene. Uh, yeah, right. I don't know. I don't know who's the killer there. That's why we didn't play the game this time. But I, I will say that Jill, like her plan unraveling at the hospital, kind of bothered me. Like I wanted her. It's just a pet peeve. Like I wanted them to write her one more kind of uh, of a stretch. Like all right, I'm gonna frame them one more time. I'll frame. Gail or Dewey to kill Sydney in this instance or something. Yeah, her ability to think on the fly seemed to be dampened. I agree. She had no, like, there was no way around just that final kill just being out of revenge, and everybody would have known. Like, her whole plan went to shit right then and there by Sydney yeah. being alive. Well, and that's, like, how, look, Sydney has survived everything up to this point. Why do you assume she's just dead? Yeah. You like you have to if if you're if you're that obsessed with your cousin to the point where you want to like as, assume her life essentially and her fame, you have to be prepared for the fact that she may not have made it. Right. Uh doesn't work. Doesn't yeah. quite work. So some more issues with these movies in the first two. I will say there's some more best though. Like there's some great lines, including the the title of this next segment. 
he was making a movie called Stab. He, he was, was stabbed. stabbed. <laughs> like the other cop in Scream 3 Watch the fucking aliens. Like during the draft. Like when he like everything about him is hilarious. Yes. I wanted more from him. This is the scene where you come with us down to the station. <laughs> yeah, he killed me the whole movie. Uh everything Parker Posey was really funny. She's terrific. I thought the first time I saw Scream 3 when I was a teenager, she was so grating to me. And then you realize, I mean, when you're actually critically watching this stuff, how great of a foil she is for Gail, especially. She just killed, and, and Dewey, and, and yeah. you know, ultimately as a red herring, like she's playing the slightly under the radar character to where you think after Roman winds up dead, you know, you think, oh, it was probably her. And she's yeah. ghost faced. And you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of, you know, I remember that the first time I saw it and I was, I was nudging my friend in the theater and, and, and I, obviously when I, I, that's what I, when I actually remembered who the killer was, I'm like, oh, it was Roman. Uh, I said okay. before because I because it was my best guess the mm-hmm. first time I saw it. I they did do a good job of setting her up, and she's certainly there's not a lot likable about her character. So, like, if she were to be revealed to be the killer, you could yeah it would be somebody that's been put off to the audience for the entire film. But it's she's funny though. She's smoking oh, yeah. a cigarette the first time in eighteen months. Look at what she's happened. still. I mean, she's yeah. she's acting like she's still in a uh, what do you call it movie there that she's most well known. A Christopher for. Guest movie. Yeah, yes. Christopher she, Guest she's movie. a Hal Hartley Christopher Guest actress, and yeah. yeah, she she feels like she's in one of those movies. I've really enjoyed her career overall. We probably should just do like more Parker Posey movies. That would be better for our podcast just in general. Uh, <laughs> the movie within the movie stuff is fun in Scream Three. I, I think the script kind of skewers Hollywood people and they take a lot of jabs in there. Obviously they take the big swings and mm-hmm. totally imbalanced, but the jabs like a, even that security guard played by the tick, what's his name? Patrick Warburton. Yes. Like he's <laughs> the funny. tick is where you go for Patrick Warburton, huh? Okay. <laughs> he's <All> the right. <laughs> tick. <laughs> okay. Not the guy. Oh, you haven't seen Seinfeld. God damn it, Mike. <laughs> I, I can't see Seinfeld. Like yeah. you have to, I mentioned the Jenny McCarthy stuff. I thought that was good metal work. There's a lot of Scream 3 scenes that we've talked about. I I will say Scream 4, like some of the thrills really work and some of the action scenes really work, whereas Scream 3 is goofier. Yes. I I just want to draw attention to one more time. Like the Scream 4 action scenes are pretty darn good. And you get back to the horror of the horror franchise that scream is supposed to be. I mean, that Bloody. Olivia death scene. Ooh. Yeah. It's exactly where I'm going. That Olivia death scene, that room is, and I remember hearing Wes Craven talk about it in previous interviews, how like he went out of his way to make that as gruesome as possible because he wanted to bring that like severity and that anxiousness into the shooting. And it's, it's gross. And it's, you see her literally gutted on the bed and it's a callback to scream one. When you see the, uh, the entrails of, of Casey's character and Steve's character there. Like, it's it's terrifying to watch. I also, as far as terrifying goes, Roger Jackson has been great all series long. I think he's perfected the voice in 3. Specific, I, I, 3 is the most uh, scared I am of Roger Jackson's voice. But I think 3 and 4, he's, he's perfect. I mean, it's an absolutely perfect job by him. He's so direct and so terrifying and so just crude. And I'm going to slit your eyelids open Ooh. so you can watch me stab you in the face, he says in four. Oh, that's gross. And he's got these horrible things to say through high school kids' voices, really. Yeah. I mean, through his own voice, but I mean, he's playing high school kids playing Ghostface. Yeah. It's very different than the last movie where he's got 
you know, traumatized psycho uh, of, you know, 30 years old and a Hollywood player, et cetera. Right. It's, diff- it's very different. And Scream 1 and Scream 4, I think his acting job is much more nuanced. Yeah, I, I would agree with that as far as any other highlights coming out of 4 as well. I liked how if they were going to do 4 as kind of a, a reboot of 1, it's an updated version where you know, Gail's setting up the cameras again at the party, at the teen party, but this time the killer's one step ahead. Mm-hmm. So because it's a new generation, a new decade, so the killer's know is on top of what Gail's going to do and knows her M.O. at this point because she is so famous and wrote all those books and whatnot. So I appreciated those little touches. Yeah, it's a bit frustrating at times for me with the Gail character being sidelined. However, I'm glad she gets involved at the very end, I would say. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hoping more for Gail in this in this fifth movie. But like you, I'm afraid for them. And maybe that's a good transition into the outro here because we're going to talk about our hopes and dreams for Scream 5 in our next episode, Michael. Maybe the last half hour like we're talking uh, in terms of our Scream 5 first reactions coverage. And then, yeah, the, the, the pre-episode stuff. So. Yeah. Stay tuned for that, and uh, like I said, three episodes from now, or two episodes from now, we will review 2022 Scream. Holy shnikes, it's here. Yeah, I, I agree with you there, and this, by the way, I I'm, have forgotten this last episode completely, and I almost forgot it this one, so I'm getting it in at the end here. My apologies to, to Mario Beltrami, but the score for these movies, I think, has been top-tier stuff as well, and really great at mood setting, and it's done a great job throughout the chases, and yeah. I just wanted to give that credit, and I meant to last episode, and thank God I remembered now, and my apologies for waiting so long, but I wanted to just get that in at the end there, but I- I'm excited, like you are, to see what happens next and where we go from here. I'm excited to, to give predictions and give some thoughts and hopes and tell people what I want to see and what I hope to see, and how Stu is definitely coming back and involved in Scream 5, which I don't know anything about, but that's you're going to hear something about that from me in the next episode. But that's uh, what we have on the horizon as far as what's coming next from MMO. What matters most importantly to us, as it always does, though, dear listener, is what are your thoughts about Screams 3 and 4? When's the last time you did take them both in? Uh, are there any highs or lows we did not mention that you wanted to make note of? You can let us know all that, as well as any other thoughts, comments, questions, or concerns you have about anything else we do here in the MMO universe. You can leave us all of those on our social medias. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook and Instagram at MM and Oscar on Twitter, Mike, Mike, and Oscar at gmail.com, dot com, and on Reddit. We are available wherever you do hear podcasts. If you're listening to us on the Apple Podcast app, if you would be so kind as to leave us a five star review, if you appreciate what we do here, we would really appreciate that from you. Michael, you told the good people what's coming next. What about some words of wisdom for us to get out of here on? I think it's wise to jog your brain and kind of look at the last 15 20 years of cinema because i do think it plays in here and Mm. get the reboot or the reboot or the reboot quill (laughs) rules like in your head and kind of condition yourself that's where my head's at going into stream five because i think williamson yeah i think he's gonna you know go to that extent and kind of gonna he's gonna have fun with all of these like you said all of these horror nostalgic films getting rebooted Mm. in the 2010s especially and kind of play with that kind of how scream 4 started that but to this it's almost like they're a movie behind in a way that they probably should have done the reboot with four because the three was kind of a mulligan in a way in Mm. terms of williamson not being involved so this is williamson's reboot quill of screen mm. 
and let's mm. see how he does with it. So that's it's wise to refresh yourself on reboot rules. I like that. I like that a lot. Very wise words indeed. Guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these reboot quill rules with us. We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round without the stuffiness. We will see you all very soon. See ya. Time for your last question. Name the remake of the groundbreaking... Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, Dawn of the Dead, The Hills Have Heights, Amityville Horror, Christmas House of Wax, Hot Night, My Bloody Valentine. It's one of those, right? None of the above.